Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is Exodus week number 33, chapters 38, 39, and 40, the end of the series on Exodus. Well, tonight is the last night of Exodus. Next week, we begin an adventure in Leviticus. And I, uh, I hope you enjoy it. I think it is going to be very uplifting. Beginning last week, we have been examining now the actual construction of the tabernacle. And the reason we've not taken a look at it all that closely the last week or so is because it's a repeat of the specifications given much earlier in Exodus. And why do we find in the Bible this tedious repetition and not just some words stating that just as the Lord had ordered it, that's how Israel built it? Because we're speaking of the single most important central holy item on the planet at that time. The sacred tent, the wilderness tabernacle, has no rival. This was Jehovah's one and only sanctuary on earth. There, there was nothing like it. And only later, its replacement, the temple, would at all be its equal. Therefore, excruciating detail is offered to us to demonstrate that every effort was made to construct the wilderness tabernacle precisely according to its blueprint. So let's read chapter 38 together. Exodus chapter 38. He made the altar for burnt offerings of acacia wood, seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide. It was a square and four and a half feet high. He made horns for it on its four corners. The horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils for the altar. It's pots, shovels, basins, meat hooks, fire pans, all its utensils he made of bronze. He made for the altar a grate of bronze netting and under its rim reaching halfway up to the altar. He cast four rings for the four ends of the bronze gate to hold the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. He put the carrying poles into the rings on the sides of the altar and he made it of planks and hollow inside. He made the basin of bronze with his base of bronze from the mirrors of the women serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He made the courtyard. On the south side, facing southward, the tapestries for the courtyard were made of finely woven linen, 150 feet long, supported on 20 posts and 20 bronze sockets. The hooks on the posts and the attached rings for hanging were made of silver. On the north side, they were 150 feet long, hung on 20 posts and 20 bronze sockets with the hooks on the posts and the rings of silver. On the west side, were tapestries 75 feet long and their rings of silver. On the west side, uh, rather on the east side, were tapestries 
75 feet long. The tapestries on the one side of the gateway were 22 and a half feet long, hung on three posts and three sockets. Likewise for the other side. On either side of the gate were tapestries 22 and a half feet long, on three posts and three sockets. All the tapestries for the courtyard, all the way around, were of finely woven linen. The sockets for the posts were of bronze. The hooks on the post and their rings were silver. The capitals on top of the posts were overlaid with silver. And all the posts of the courtyard were banded with silver. The screen for the gateway to the courtyard was the work of a weaver in colors. Blue, purple, scarlet yarn, finely woven linen. Its length was 30 feet. Its height, seven and a half feet, all the way across, like the tapestries of the courtyard. It had four posts in four bronze sockets with silver hooks, capitals overlaid with silver and silver fasteners. The tent pegs for the tabernacle and the courtyard around it were of bronze. These are the accounts of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the testimony recorded as Moses ordered by the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aharon, the priest. Bethlehel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made everything that Adonai ordered Moshe to make. Assisting him was Aholioth, the son of Akhetsamach, of the tribe of Dan, who was an engraver, a designer and a weaver in colors, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine linen. All the gold used for the work and everything needed for the sanctuary, the gold of the offering weighed 29 talents, using the sanctuary, uh, uh, 730 shekels using the sanctuary shekel. The silver given by the community weighed 100 talents, 1,775 shekels using the sanctuary shekel. This was a becha per person, that is half a shekel, one-fifth of an ounce per person using the sanctuary shekel. For everyone 20 years old or older counted in the census, 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were used to cast the sockets for the sanctuary and the sockets for the curtain. One hundred sockets made from the hundred talents. One talent per socket. The 1,775 shekels he used to make hooks for the posts to overlay their capitals and to make fasteners for them. The bronze in the offering came to 4,680 pounds. He used it to make the sockets for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the bronze altar, its bronze grate, all the utensils for the altar, the sockets for the courtyard around it, the sockets for the gateway to the courtyard, all the tent pegs for the tabernacle, all the tent pegs for the courtyard around it. About halfway through this chapter, beginning in verse 21, we see that one of Aaron's sons, a fellow named Ithamar, was in charge of accounting for all the materials used in making the tabernacle. But likely this is more than mere accounting. Ithamar was also the historian. He chronicled the building of the tabernacle, and very probably was instrumental in assisting Moses in writing down particularly this part 
of the Torah. And in verse 8, we're given this curious information that the mirrors of the women serving at the entrance to the tabernacle were used in making the brazen labor for holding water. Now, the mirror effect of the water in the, the labor is talked about in Solomon's temple era. And some scholars think that these words about the use of hand mirrors was a redaction from a later time in an attempt to bolster a tradition whereby we had the women of Israel commended for their special contributions of the mirrors. Mirrors were rare, expensive, and nowhere in the list of items God commanded the Israelites to supply was there a mention of mirrors. So the idea here is that certain pious women went well above and beyond what was requested in giving up their extremely precious mirrors right, as a sign of their gratitude for what Jehovah was doing in having a dwelling place built so that he could be present among them. Now, mirrors in that age were not made of reflective glass. Okay? Rather, they were just highly polished discs right, of copper or bronze that had been fitted with handles of varying materials. Since mirrors were prohibitively expensive except for the wealthy people, the handles were, of course, also made of very expensive material like gold or ivory. And we also then get a record in this chapter of the very impressive amounts of precious materials that was used in the construction of the tabernacle. About one ton of gold was used. A little under 7,000 pounds of silver. Okay. A little more than two tons of bronze. Okay. So the precious metal alone that went into building the tabernacle was very nearly seven tons. Now while I've described to you the weight of the various construction materials in pounds and tons, in Hebrew, all right, it, it was actually given in something that was called a kikar and a shekel. shekel okay? The Hebrew kikar is almost always translated as talent. All right? A talent was generally the largest unit of weight measurement of that era. Just like today, what's our largest unit of weight measurement? A ton. And everything is multiple tons. Okay. Well, a talent was the largest unit of weight measurement for that era, and it consisted of about 3,600 shekels. Now, not for about eight centuries after this time of the building of the tabernacle, did the use of coins come into play for Israel. When coins finally became common, the term shekel became the standard unit of Israeli money, just like the dollar is today in America. But in the eras of Moses, Kings David and Solomon, and right on up to their exile to Babylon, a shekel was not a coin. It was simply a unit of weight, like an ounce. So up to this point, and basically 
almost all the way through the Old Testament, when it speaks of shekels, don't think of a coin. It's just a unit of weight. Okay. Let's move on to chapter 39. From the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, they made the garments for officiating, for serving in the holy place. And they made the holy garments for Aaron, as Adonai had ordered Moses. He made the ritual vest of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn of finely woven linen. They hammered the gold into thin plates and cut them into threads in order to work them in to the blue and purple and scarlet yarn right, and the fine linen crafted by the skilled artisan. They made shoulder pieces for it. They joined it together. They were joined together at the two ends. The decorated belt on the vest used to fasten it was of the same workmanship and materials. Gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, finely twisted linen, as Adonai had ordered Moses. They worked the onyx stones, mounted in gold settings, engraved them with the names of the sons of Israel, as they would be engraved on a seal. Then he put them on the shoulder pieces of the vest to be stones, calling to mind the sons of Israel, as Adonai had ordered Moses. He made the breastplate. It was crafted by a skilled artisan, made like the work of the ritual vest of gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, finely woven linen. When folded double, the breastplate was a square. Doubled, it was a hand span by a hand span. Then set, in it, then set in it four rows of stones. The first row was a carnelian, a topaz, and an emerald. The second row was a green feldspar, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row was an orange zircon, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row was a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were mounted in settings of gold, and the stones corresponded to the names of the twelve sons of Israel. They were engraved with their names as a seal would be engraved, each name representing one of the twelve tribes. On the breastplate, they made two pure gold chains twisted like cords. Also for the breastplate, they made two settings of gold and two gold rings and put the two rings at the two ends of the breastplate. They put the two twisted gold chains in the two rings at the end of the breastplate and attached the other two ends of the twisted chains to the front of the shoulder pieces of the ritual vest. They also made two gold rings and put them on the two ends of the breastplate at its edge on the side facing in toward the vest. Also they made two gold rings and attached them low on the front part of the vest's, uh, vest's shoulder pieces near the join above the vest's decorated belt. Then they bound the breastplate by its rings to the rings of the vest with a blue cord so that it could be on the vest's decorated belt and so that the breastplate would not swing loose from the vest as Adonai had ordered Moses. He made the robe for the ritual vest. It was woven entirely of blue with its opening in the middle like that of a coat of mail and with a border around the opening so that it wouldn't tear 
On the bottom hem, they made pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet and woven linen. And they made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all the way around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates. That is, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, all the way around the hem of the robe for service, just as Adam and I had ordered Moses. They made the tunics out of finely woven linen for Aaron and his sons. The turban was of fine linen, the splendid headgear of fine linen, the linen shorts, and the sash of finely woven linen in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, the work of a weaver in colors, just as Adonai had ordered Moses. They made the ornament for the holy turban of pure gold, wrote on it the words, set apart for Adonai like the engraving on the seal, and tied a blue cord on it to fasten it to the front of the turban, as Adonai had ordered Moses. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was finished, with the people of Israel doing everything exactly as Adonai had ordered Moses. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses. The tent, all its furnishings, clasps, planks, crossbars, posts and sockets, the covering of the tanned ram skins, the covering of fine leather and the curtain for the screen, the ark for the testimony, its poles and the ark cover, the table, all its utensils and the showbread, the pure menorah, its lamps and their arrangement for display, its accessories and oil for the light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, the screen for the entrance to the tent, the bronze altar with its bronze gate, poles, all its utensils, the basin with its base, the tapestries for the courtyard with their posts and sockets, the screen for the entrance to the courtyard with its ropes and tent pegs, all the utensils for the service in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the garments for officiating for serving in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons to serve in the office of priest. The people of Israel did all the work just as Adonai had ordered Moses. Moses saw all the work and there it was. They had done it exactly as Adonai had ordered. They had done it and Moses blessed them. They're a little bit proud of themselves, huh? Well, chapter 39, 39 mainly recounts the making of the priestly garments that you see up here. More to the point, it goes into great detail about the making of Aaron's garment, right? his high priest outfit. Right? And although we covered this several weeks ago, let's just take a few minutes to review this splendid outfit. Okay? The multi-layered garment was made using yarns and cloth of colors that were particularly difficult and expensive to manufacture, and therefore they were pretty rare. All right? Blue, purple, scarlet, red. Now, chapter 39 spends most of its time discussing the outer, the most noticeable pieces of the uh, uniform, and therefore it begins with the ephod. Okay? The ephod was this piece that kind of looks like an apron. 
that you see here on the front. Over the ephod went this breastplate. Okay? And although the ephod and breastplate were two different pieces, they worked together. And therefore, typically the combination of the ephod and the breastplate um, were, uh, were very usually called in the Bible simply the ephod. The breastplate was assumed. Okay. Now this breastplate was a, and you see a bigger picture of it here to the left, um, was a square piece. All right, and it had 12 precious and semi-precious stones raised, uh, arranged in four rows of three across. And each stone had the name of one of the 12 tribes engraved on it. All right, so all 12 tribes were represented on that breastplate. The breastplate was held to the front of the ephod, that apron, by means of two rings attached to the ephod, and it was worn on the chest, so it would be over the heart. And now, shoulder straps went from the front of the ephod to a piece that was worn on the back. The piece was basically identical to the front. Right? And where each of these straps went over the shoulder, a large onyx stone was affixed, one on each side. And the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were placed on these two stones. Now, while it's not absolutely stated in the Bible, the Jewish sages agree that the names of the twelve tribes were divided into two groups, six tribes on one, six on the other. And there's a lot of symbolism in these stones. The twelve stones, one name, or, um, one set of names on each stone, Right, you can see them pictured here. Right, indicates the individuality of each tribe. But by being grouped together, it also shows them to be of one source, of one father, Echad, unified. The two large stones placed on the shoulders seem to be prophetic that though to God, Israel indeed is one, Israel will become divided. Okay, Some 400 years into the future, upon King Solomon's death, civil war will lead Israel to be split into two houses, into two kingdoms. Some tribes belonging to one house, the remainder belonging to the other house. Alright, now, this long outer garment over which the ephod and the breastplate were worn. This long outer garment was solid blue, just like you see pictured here. And all around the bottom hem were bells and pomegranates. Now we're told in an earlier chapter that the bells were necessary in order that the high priest would not die when he was doing service in the tabernacle. The bells were more than a decoration. Okay. In fact, later on in the temple era, the temple, remember, was just the permanent version of the tabernacle, a rope was tied onto the high priest's 
ankle. So that when he went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the idea was that the lower priests would be standing outside of the sanctuary, hanging onto that rope, and they would listen for this constant jingling of the bells as he moved around inside. And if that jingling stopped for any substantial period of time, that they would assume that likely God has killed the high priest for some breach of protocol, so they would be ready to pull him out of there all right, uh, with that rope. Now the logic for this procedure really is pretty understandable. Right? Only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies. Anyone else that would dare to venture into that place would be struck dead. Okay? So if something happened to the high priest inside, what were they supposed to do? Nobody was allowed to go in there. It was suicide. So even if they quickly appointed a new high priest to go in and get the dead one, right? that wouldn't help because under no circumstance can a high priest handle a dead body. Not even a member of his own family, let alone the previous high priest. Okay? Incidentally, there is no record, biblical or otherwise, of a high priest actually dying inside there All right? um, and having to be dragged out by the rope. Well, underneath this blue robe was a white tunic. You see part of that tunic sticking out here that, that, that represent the sleeves. Um, so far in chapter 39, all the items were worn by the high priest only. But beginning now with the white tunic, the remaining garments were common to all the priests, no matter what their level of status or duty. The turban, the head covering, sometimes called a mitre, although worn by all priestly levels, did not include this gold head plate that was up here. That was worn exclusively by the high priest. Okay. The head plate was simply a very thin strip of gold held on with a thread. All right, with the words holy to Yudhevavhe written on it. Right. Now, take notice of how this chapter ends. We kind of laughed at it when we got to it. Okay. The tabernacles completed. And here we have a very formal recounting of everything the people made. Now, while this seems pretty over the top, all right, for us today, all this detailed accounting. It fits a style and a custom of that day. Okay. The purpose is to declare to those members of Israel who were present in the wilderness and for their posterity that, that what they did was all that God had instructed exactly as he had instructed, and they're pretty doggone pleased with themselves for having done it. Now, we should also take notice of the parallels between this part of Exodus, the completion of the tabernacle, and the Genesis story of creation. Okay. 
since some of those parallels overlap between chapters 39 and 40, let's read chapter 40 before we get into that. So open your Bibles and we're going to read the last chapter of Exodus, chapter 40 together. Adonai said to Moshe, On the first day of the first month, you are to set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Put in it the ark for the testimony and conceal the ark behind the curtain. Bring in the table, arrange its display, bring in the menorah, light its lamps. Set the gold altar for incense in front of the ark of the testimony and set up the screen at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar for burnt offerings in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard all the way around and hang up the screen for the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it with all of its furnishings, then it will be holy. Anoint the altar for burnt offerings with all its utensils. Consecrate the altar. Then the altar will be especially holy. Anoint the basin and its base and consecrate it. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Put the holy garments on Aaron, anoint him, consecrate him, so that he can serve me in the office of Cohen, office of priest. Bring in his sons, put tunics on them, anoint them as you anointed their father, so that they can serve me in the office of Cohen. Their anointing will signify that the office of priest is theirs throughout all their generations. Moses did this. He acted in accordance with everything Adonai had ordered him to do. And on the first day of the first month of the second year, the tabernacle was set up. Moses erected the tabernacle, put its sockets in place, put up its planks, put in its crossbars, set up its posts. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent above it as Adonai had ordered Moses. He took and put the testimony inside the ark put the poles on the ark, and set the ark cover above on the ark. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle, set up a curtain, uh, set up the curtain as a screen, and concealed the ark for the testimony, as Adonai had ordered Moses. He put it he put the table in the tent of meeting on the side of the tabernacle facing north, outside the curtain. He arranged a roll of bread on it before Adonai, as Adonai had ordered Moses. He put the menorah in the tent of meeting across from the table on the side of the tabernacle facing south. Then he lit the lamps before Adonai, as Adonai had ordered Moses, and he set the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned on it incense made of aromatic spices, as Adonai had ordered Moses. He set up the screen at the entrance to the tabernacle. The altar for the burnt offerings he placed at the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as Adonai had ordered Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing so that Moses and Aaron and his sons could wash their hands and feet there so that they could wash when entering the tent of meeting and when approaching the altar, as Adonai had ordered Moses. Finally, 
he erected the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen for the entrance to the courtyard. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud remained on it, and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel continued with their travels. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not travel onward until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of Adonai was above the tabernacle during the day, and fire was in it, in the cloud, at night, so that all the house of Israel could see it throughout all their travels. Well, Israel has gone from Egypt, been gone from Egypt now, just a few days shy of a year. Okay. We really should be impressed by the fact that this incredible sanctuary complex with its furnishings and the priestly garments was completed in about six months. Okay. We know this is the time frame because it took over a little took a little over two months for Israel to reach Mount Sinai after leaving Egypt. And then after a little time getting settled, we find Moses going up to the mountain for 40 days. And then he came back down to the Golden Calf Rebellion and then turned around and went back up the mountain for another 40 days. This before the blue, that detailed blueprint um, for the tabernacle was given by Moses to the people that they could begin to build it. So Israel was out Mount at Mount Sinai for roughly five to six months before they went to work on building the tabernacle. Now, Jehovah tells Moses that on the first day of the first month, they're to set up the tabernacle and consecrate it. This day is just a couple of weeks shy of Passover, the day they left Egypt. The Hebrews operated then on a lunar calendar. The new moon was what they used to mark the first day of each new month. The new moon that was about to occur was not only going to be the first day of a new month, it was also going to be the first month of a new year. Okay. So by our reckoning, they were to set up the tabernacle on the first of Aviv, which is our March-April time frame. Now understand... This was the Hebrew religious event calendar year, not the Hebrew agricultural calendar year, not the Hebrew civil calendar year, not the Hebrew regnal calendar year. Okay? And all of these different calendar years existed simultaneously. Okay? And each began at a different time. That's why when people want to discuss with me calendars concerning biblical events, I tell them, take a number. All right, Because if you really want to, we'll sit down and do it, but it's going to take an afternoon. All right? It is terribly complex. All right? And it can only be dealt with in a fairly extensive manner. There's no quick and easy to remember answers to these questions. Now, even if their ancient multiple calendar system seems hard for us to comprehend why they would do such a thing, 
Okay, understand that it certainly made sense to the Hebrews. They didn't have any problem with it. Now, as an analogy to what they were doing, just take a look at our American calendar system. Okay, we have a standard solar calendar year that begins on January 1st, right? But we also have this thing called a fiscal year, don't we? Right. Which a business can use to determine the 12 month cycle for income and expenses for tax purposes. An interesting thing about a fiscal year is it can start any month a person chooses. We have our own personal fiscal year. Right. Besides that, we also have things called school years, don't we? That vary from state to state. School district to school district, county to county, and it has utterly no bearing on calendar years or fiscal years. Now, we all understand this, right? And this is just something we've all grown up with. Well, it was the same for the Hebrews. This, all these different ways of measuring things, they fully understand what their purposes were for. They had no trouble with it. So even though the erecting of the tabernacle now, says will occur on the first day of the first month of the Hebrew religious observance calendar year. It's not New Year's Day. It's not Rosh Hashanah, which is the first day of the Hebrew civil calendar year. Jewish New Year occurs on the first day of the seventh month of the religious event calendar year, about fall by our the way we measure time. Okay. So it was springtime when the wilderness tabernacle would be erected and then consecrated and then put into use. Okay. In fact, the construction and then consecration of the tabernacle would occur just in time to use to use it as kind of the central feature for Passover. And then the festival of matzah, which began on the 14th of Aviv. The tent is erected on the 1st of Aviv, and the Passover will be just a day short of two weeks later. Now notice in verse 17, it says that the tabernacle was erected on the first day of the second year. Okay, This is not a contradiction of what was said just a few sentences earlier. The second year is in reference to how long the Israelites had been gone from Egypt. They were coming up on the first anniversary of their release from Pharaoh's grip. That is the end of the first year. And therefore the beginning of the second year. You following me here? Okay. In Bible speak, the day Israel departed Egypt was the first day of the first year. There is no year zero. Okay, So one year later is spoken of as either the last day of the first year or, the fir- or one day later as the first day of the second year. That's how it works. Okay? Now beginning in verse 18 and continuing through verse 33, we get a very climactic rundown of the construction and consecration of the tabernacle. And it ends with the words, so Moses finished the work. The idea here is to bring us to this fitting completion of the task, the building of the tabernacle, 
It's the end of a phase, right? which in turn readies Israel for the next phase of God's plan for them, which is to begin their journey. This was just preparation for the journey. Okay, the principle here is unmistakable. If you're going to take a journey with God, then you better be properly equipped. Okay, because for the people of God, that means we must be equipped with God. Okay, and that was the whole purpose of the tabernacle, that God would dwell with them. Once again, that brings us to Paul, St. Paul's analogy that we as believers are God's present day earthly tabernacles, his temples, God's dwelling places on earth. And once the tabernacle was built in the midst of the encampment of Israel, the tribes all carefully arranged around the central feature, which was the tabernacle, then Moses' tent, Remember we talked about that? Moses had his own tent out, away. That would have been decommissioned as the place where Moses would have met with God. And in verse 36, we are given the signal that Jehovah will give each give Israel each time he's ready for them to move on and to take the next step towards his goal for them, the promised land. The land that was promised to Israel's great ancestor, Abraham. And the signal to break camp is the lifting upward of the cloud of glory that hovered above and upon the tabernacle. And to reinforce the instruction, the negative of that is also given. That is, if the cloud doesn't go up, then stay right where you are. This Exodus episode ends with another God principle. When God wants you to move... He'll show you. All of Israel saw that cloud and they knew the signal. All of Israel knew when it was time to move on, time to stay put. This is a very visual parallel to the condition of the church era believer who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. God is not going to tell me to tell you when it's time to move on. You have a personal relationship with him. He'll tell you. Oh, he might use me, might use your spouse, somebody else to encourage you, maybe even to confirm something with you. He he will show each of us, one-on-one, his will for our lives. Now, I'd like to conclude our story of Exodus by examining those parallels I said I was going to talk about between the creation story at the beginning of Genesis and the building of the wilderness tabernacle. Now, scholars for quite some time, really, have noticed that the beginning in Exodus 25.1 and ending, that rather beginning with Exodus 25.1 and ending with 31.11, the verses are arranged and divided into six very apparent units because when viewed in the original language, Hebrew, okay, each of these distinctive units or sections is marked at its beginning by these words. And Jehovah said to Moses. Okay, and immediately upon the completion of the sixth unit, 
we find the seventh is introduced. And guess what the subject of that unit is? The Sabbath. Okay. It cannot be coincidental that the story of creation tells of six days of works and then a seventh day of completion and rest, just as is the pattern for constructing the wilderness tabernacle. Here we have, have emphasized this never-ending nature of the Sabbath, its connection to the seventh day, the holiness that's intrinsic to it, and the ceasing from our works that's central to its entire meaning. Okay. If one compares the creation story to the building of the tabernacle, we see a very similar structure. We even see a similar use of phrases. For instance, upon God's completing his creation, the Bible says that he looked and he saw and he said, he saw all that he made and he found it to be very good. And in like pattern, upon completion of the tabernacle, Moses looked it all over and pronounced it done, completed in accordance to God's plan. That is the construction of the universe and the construction of the tabernacle. Both represent God's vision precisely brought into existence. Now, another invaluable connection to observe in the similarity between the creation and the building of the tabernacle is that creation, our universe, consists of four dimensions. Three of the dimensions, length, width, height, make up what we call space. The fourth dimension is time. Okay? Our universe consists only of those four dimensions. That's it. The tabernacle enshrines the sacred nature of space, the Sabbath enshrines the sacred nature of time. Therefore, the tabernacle, together with the Sabbath, is a monument to the creation, and the Bible is going to make that exact connection for us a number of times, if you know what to look for. Okay. Now, Moses certainly did not look over all that had been built and use God's pronouncement that it was exceedingly good. That would have gone just a tad too far. Right? Because this dwelling and its furnishings were man-made. They were accomplished by human hands, even though it was God-ordained. It was a shadow of perfection, a shadow of God's spiritual dwelling place in heaven, but while it, it strove for perfection, it was not perfection. As the world was that moment after God created it. Now, but the intent of the wilderness tabernacle was to represent literally a piece of heaven on earth. Okay. A holy place. And when we get into Leviticus, we're going to see that the primary purpose of the sacrifices and the rituals were to protect and maintain, at times to repair, the relationship of holiness between God and Israel. We also find that the tabernacle was erected on the first day of the first month of the new year. 
This too corresponds to the creation narrative. That is, creation marks the first day of the first month of the first year of the history of history. Physical life before creation had never before existed. After the completion of the tabernacle, new life for Israel officially began. A whole new chapter in the human race had begun with that tabernacle. Even more, we're going to see this same pattern had actually occurred when God destroyed the world by flood. It was on the first day of the first month of the new year that the earth was finally dry and man could repopulate. Okay, The first of Aviv the Hebrew religious calendar's first day of the new year is all about creation and regeneration. And it's accomplished, as is all else in the Bible, in a dual manner. Spiritually and physically. Just as the wilderness tabernacle was a physical, earthly model of Jehovah's spiritual dwelling place in heaven, so is the Sabbath a spiritual concept with a physical counterpart. The Israelites were to physically rest after six days of work. Believers are to spiritually rest in Messiah, as well as physically rest on that seventh day, a day of extreme holiness. Was Moses right? Had all that God ordained to make his earthly dwelling place acceptable to him been accomplished? Well, apparently. Because in verse 34, we're told that the glory of God, what would later come to be called the Shekinah, okay, filled the wilderness tabernacle, the dwelling place. And verse 35 tells us that due to God's presence filling up that dwelling, Moses couldn't enter it. So since that's the case, how is it that shortly, with God's presence still in the tabernacle, that Moses would be able to enter it? Well, for the moment, God was just stretching his legs. He was occupying every area of that tabernacle. Both the holy place, the front room of the tabernacle, and the holy of holies, the back room of the tabernacle. But soon he would withdraw to exclusively within the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat rested. And from that point forward, the Lord would only occupy that portion of the tent, the Holy of Holies. Then Moses and the priests could enter. Well, this ends the book of Exodus. Next up, Leviticus and the complex and all-important sacrificial, sacrificial system that God has ordained for Israel to maintain their holiness. Okay, that's it.